the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program, a brand new week. It's warmer, I feel better, and I pray that you had a great weekend in church. We did. I pray that the Lord was able to use you, and you had the opportunity to put your arms around somebody, a hurting brother or sister, and bring him to Jesus, bring him into the light, and make everything better. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions. I'll do the best I can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app to send your questions in. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, Hit the Call Now banner and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our main number, it's 340-9585. Hey, thank you all for your prayers for our ladies' retreat. It went absolutely beautifully. Um, I, I, you know, you always expect the the women to come back and say, oh, this was great. God really spoke to me. There's that sense of expectation and anticipation. And God always rewards those who go trusting uh, by faith that, that he's going to meet them. And of course, Jesus did. But this um, particular um, year, uh, I had more of the ladies come to me yesterday, just casual comments. Pastor Ron, this was the best retreat ever. And I'm talking people who've been to like 20 of them and, and uh, um, some who have just been to a few. This was the best one ever. So I really, really appreciate your prayers. Our daughter-in-law, Lori, came from California. She's not a believer. Paula says, She's getting really, really close, and she had a great time. So uh, thank you very, very much for your prayers. Um, Tonight, uh, on our Monday night uh, women's Bible study, uh, in fact, not only tonight, but the next Monday as well for two weeks, um, they always turn the Monday nights into sort of a retreat reflection time. And that enables some of the ladies who weren't able to make it to the retreat uh, it enables them to sort of live vicariously through the experiences of the others just to get a feel, a sense of what's going on. Um, but um, I, I'm, I'm anxious to see what was going on. Additionally, on Thursday on the Date Day show, uh, Paula's going to round up a half a dozen of the ladies or so who were uh, at the retreat and who aren't terrified of coming on the radio. And uh, they'll share their hearts, what God was doing on the Thursday program. Uh, we've done that for the last few years and um, always got a really great response from it. So that's coming up on the Date Day show on Thursday. In addition to our Monday night for the ladies, of course, uh, Pastor Ken will be teaching a men's Bible study. We have our high school group and our junior high school group also meeting. 
uh, uh, they'll be taught the word as well. So we can make it a family affair. It's really, really a neat thing to do on Monday night. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. The ladies can watch the retreat reflection online at calvarysa.com. Well, we'd love your live calls and questions, so let me go with some questions that we have already until um, you call. Uh, this is anonymous, and I'm laughing because um, I've heard this before. Pastor Ron, you have almost no social media presence. I was looking for you on Facebook and Twitter and found nothing. Are you neglecting an opportunity for your church to grow and or to raise money? Well, Anonymous, I don't know how long you've been listening, but we don't do anything to make our church grow or we don't do anything to raise money. Uh, we can't fit anybody else in the church. Um, you know, uh, we, 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 we expand sort of on our radio ministries. but um, uh, And we've got a, a really big online viewing audience, so we do have uh, live streaming for our services. Uh, we never ask for money, so we wouldn't, uh, we're not looking for opportunities to raise money. We need money, and, and we're grateful when the Lord provides it through his people. But uh, we've never spent one dime or, or, or one minute uh, trying to figure out how to make our church grow or how to raise more money. So it's just not something that we do. As to the social media presence, um, I, I honestly, and, and I'm not a Luddite, I'm, I'm not one of those guys who's anti-technology, but I honestly don't see the value of being on Facebook. I'm not sure yet what Twitter really does. Uh, and again, I'm not a Neanderthal. It's just that um, what I see on Facebook or from people who are on Facebook is all kinds of pain and opportunities to sin. And and um, uh, Twitter is just a, a expression of opinions. Uh, I, you know what? I really do believe, Anonymous, that if I do my job, God will do his. My job is to proclaim the Word of God. We do that chapter by chapter, verse by verse every week. And then God does His job. If He can trust that we're doing what we're supposed to do, then God brings people. And um, our church is thriving. Um, if we had twice the space that we have now, we would, uh, we'd have twice the amount of people. Um, that's why we've planted so many churches. We've just decided that that's what God wants us to do. And so we're really not looking to expand in those areas. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraged by the size of our, our online listeners. We have a, um, um, a really big uh, online audience every Sunday and, and most Wednesdays and Fridays as well. In addition to that, um, um, you know, I have the teaching Bible programs that are on the radio, this this radio station and and another radio station in town. Um, I, I have the opportunity to do this program. So uh, I, I think I can't take much more than this. And I, I really don't. Uh, I just don't see the value. Um, my opinion on Twitter means absolutely nothing. And in fact, if I was on Twitter, I'd just be giving Jesus opinion. So I'd probably get hammered for doing that. So. Uh, we're really not looking to expand our online presence um, or social media presence, I mean, uh, at, at all. Uh, we happen to be blessed. We're on the radio in uh, all over the country, actually, with our teaching programs. And um, so I, I hope that makes sense to you. We're, I'm just not looking for those things. Um, here's a question that came into our studio producer, Patty from San Antonio. Is the church founded by Watchman Nee, considered a cult. Um, probably, Patty. Uh, it's certainly cult-like in some um, um, cases. So um, uh, it, it's not something that I would uh, recommend, um, but but I, I've actually spent so little time thinking about it. Um, Watchman Nee, I know, started out well, and he's written some really good things. But um, the, the the church now with Witness Lee, um, uh, I'm just not sure that, that they're healthy and um, and I can recommend them. So I'm sorry I can't do better than that, Patty, but I don't spend a whole bunch of time thinking about, uh, about uh, 
Watchman Nee's ministries. I would I would avoid him personally. That's the best I can do. Sorry. Here's a question from David, commenting on one of my pro, one of my questions last week. He said, "Last week you approved of Michael Youssef's ministry, but he claims his church is the Church of the Apostles. How can I recommend someone, or how can you recommend someone who claims to be an apostle? Uh, you're misunderstanding uh, Michael Youssef, um, David. Uh, he doesn't claim to be an apostle at all." Uh, what he means by that, and I think the name of his church, it used to be, if it still is, uh, the Church of the Apostles. And what he means is that his church, it's from Acts chapter 2, uh, the end of the chapter, where he, he talks about they, they clung to the Apostles' doctrine. So what, what Michael Yusuf is saying is that uh, his church is faithful to the Apostles' doctrine. He's not claiming at all to be an Apostle. Uh, he has a very balanced view on the gifts of the Spirit and the offices in the church. Uh, Michael Yusuf would say to you, uh, as I have in response to questions, that there are no modern-day apostles like the original 12 were or, or um, like the Apostle Paul. There are apostolic-style ministries in the sense that people are sent out. We would more call them church planners or, or missionaries. But um, believe me, Michael Yusuf is... Um, a pretty humble guy, uh, pretty solid in his teaching, and uh, he he would be the last one to claim any apostolic authority, um, but that he wants to connect his church to the Apostles' Doctrine, uh, I think is to be commended rather than to be criticized. Again, he's not making any self-congratulatory declarations uh, about his church being different or being the only church or certainly um, um, he's not claiming to be an apostle. So uh, I hope that helps a little bit. Here is a question from Prince. And he or she says, how can Christian teens date without crossing the line into sin? Uh, Prince, I'm, I'm encouraged that you're asking the questions. I'm certainly not an expert. It's been like 100 years since I was a teen. And when I dated... Um, believe me, Jesus wasn't in the picture for so then or until I, I was a married adult, almost 40 years of age. Um, but obviously we have a whole bunch of teenagers in the church and we've got budding romances going. It's funny to watch because we got such a small school, you know, small uh, group, especially in our kids in the, in the academy. Uh, classroom size is 10 people. And so th- th- these are these are more like brother and sister relationships, but every once in a while you'll see a relationship develop um, from very very early in their lives. I honestly right now have a junior high schooler, uh, two of them, a boy and a girl, and and uh, they have actually been telling people they were going to end up married since they were four years old. Now think about that for a moment. And now in their early teens, uh, it hasn't faded away like most relationships do. And you just see those things. Now, when we date, and I, I'm not anti-dating either, Prince. Um, when Christian teens date, they've got to be careful. They've got raging hormones and there's obviously physical attraction in the relationship. So they've got to keep everything above reproach. They've got to avoid physical contact. And by that, I, I'm not talking about they can't hold hands or, or anything like that. That's between them and their parents and their relationship with Jesus. Romans 14.23 says that anything not of faith is sin. So if they can do that and they they don't inflame themselves, then then that's certainly something that's okay. Um, but but they've got to be aware of their responsibility to Christ. And you you seem Prince to have that that awareness. You want to honor the Lord. So the the way I would say is just keep Jesus with you on your dates. You won't do bad things when Jesus is there. I promise you, you'll be tempted to do bad things if you leave Jesus home. So it's that simple. Uh, but you, you've got to remain pure and committed to the Lord. Uh, I don't think personally that Christians, even as teenagers, should, well, I call it sport dating, but then I mean, let's just date because you're cute and, and see if there's anything there. Now, I, I think that relationships ought to have a direction towards permanence, uh, if that's the case. I think that's the way to honor um, the person that you're dating, Prince. 
Um, and still, at the same time, I don't believe that people can really get to know each other if they don't date. I'm not into courting. I'm not into uh, teenagers being shielded from any possibility of temptation. I think our kids need to learn how to deal with temptation. So I, I think if they date, it must be a believer. Prince, never, ever get involved with an unbeliever. It's too easy to become emotionally entangled with an unbeliever. And then you're in for not only a broken heart, but you're in for a lot of pain as well. So if you're a believer and she's a believer um, and you have your parents' blessing, um, go in groups, um, spend some time really getting to know each other. I think, Prince, um, taking your Bibles with you and, and talking about the Lord and, and even, you know, doing little mini Bible studies uh, is a really good thing. Um, but um, if you keep Jesus there, I think you'll be okay. Um, as I say this, I know there's a bunch of parents saying, oh, I wish he would have said that they shouldn't date. Uh, remember to honor your parents. Um, we're told that in the Old Testament and the New. Um, so just be sure that you're above reproach. Treat this girl or or the girl that you're interested in, Prince, like she's God's daughter. Be respectful of parents and rules and times. Never, ever keep them out past curfew. And then let's see where the Lord goes. Prince, thanks a lot. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, here is a question from Philip. How do we bridge the gap with young people who are not interested in the same things older Christians are concerned about? For example, oh, I get it now. I'm sorry, Philip. For example, social justice, climate change, sex trafficking, and etc. Um, Philip, our job as Christians, I want to make this as simple as I can. Our job as Christians is to be interested in what Jesus is interested in. Remember, our job is just to follow him. And I think, and this is one of the, one of the errors that I see a lot of young Christians making, Philip, is they want to do something. You know, we have a lot of idealism and a lot of um, uh, zeal and ambition when we're young. And we want to go out and change the world. And I think what we need to realize, no matter what age we are, is that the only way to change the world is to follow Jesus and let him do it through you. I think when we find a cause, whether it's a climate change or social justice or the sex trafficking problem in the world, uh, I think we go out and we end up going out in our own strength and trying to do something good instead of just doing what Jesus has for you to do. And before we get really involved in, in causes, we need to really wrap ourselves in his arms. We need to find um, a, a bit of knowledge in his Bible. Um, we need to grow both in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of his will for our lives. And as we grow, as we learn more about him and become more like him, then we'll be able to discern if these causes are things that we're interested in or things that he wants us to take an interest in. And Philip, when, when God empowers us, there's no cause too big, there's no problem too big. We can do amazing things, but it begins by being a follower of Jesus. And again, I realize the, the urgency. Uh, if I can go do something with social justice or climate change, and I'm going to make the world a better place. Our job is to be a light for Jesus Christ. So let's try focusing, Philip, on Jesus instead of on doing things or on particular causes. Let me explain why that's, I think, the right way. Um, here at our church, um, we, we, we've been led into a lot of ministries um, by the Holy Spirit, um, ministries that we wouldn't otherwise be involved in. 
you know, I think most of us think of church as Sunday or midweek service, or um, uh, we have a third weekend service on Friday. And I think sometimes we just think, well, okay, that's church, we worship, we serve at the church, we do this or we do that. And all of that's great. But there's a purpose for being in church. It's to be equipped to do the work of ministry. And here at Calvary Chapel, we teach the Bible no matter what age group, from the little kids all the way up to the adults. And as you teach the Bible, and as the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, and as He begins to speak to us and develop our gifts and, 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 and gives us things in life to be passionate about, then we find out that we're really on a crusade, not for ourselves, but we're on a crusade for Him. It's not even a crusade to change the world, but a crusade to proclaim the glorious truth about Jesus Christ. And when I proclaim Christ, amazing things happen. I don't round up people to go out and picket for social justice or climate change or raiding sex trafficking places. But what we do is we do what God has called us to do and equipped us to do. And it turns out that we do a lot of social justice type things. A free school, I think most of you know that. We've got a, a home for uh, young women, not just young women, but women who are in difficult situations, maybe running from an abusive uh, husband or or maybe they've been in a little bit of trouble with the law and uh, maybe they're, 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 they're pregnant or, or had just had a baby and, and um, don't have any place to go. We want to provide that place and a foundation for the rest of their lives. And we do all of that for free. We have a free doctor's office, family practice doctor's office with a nutritionist and a pediatrician and a uh, 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 physician's assistant. And um, we, we really minister. Probably 90% of the people that come to our, our clinic are not from our church. And so we get a chance to help people every day who couldn't otherwise afford to see a doctor. It's also, Philip, coincidental, I think not, that nearly every day somebody gets saved over there. And see, these are things that we wouldn't have done if we'd have just had a mission. Okay, I'm going to send missionaries to here or to there, or we're going to do this or we're going to do that. We'd have missed out on the real work that God wants us to do. So um, I I think what you do uh, is follow Jesus. I read your question right, you want to do things that are related to the questions you ask, social justice, climate change, and sex trafficking. You want to change people. You want to help people. That's great, but, but you can't do it in your own strength. So don't be on a mission for your own causes. Be on a mission for whatever it is Jesus thrills your heart to do and equips you to do. Then you can change the world. Philip, thank you very, very much for that question. Um, here's a question from Jason. I have another one, but I'll have to do that at the top of the break. Uh, this one is from Jason. Um, how do you, He said, do you personally in Calvary Chapel generally lean more toward Calvinism or Arminianism? Jason, we don't lean to either side. Uh, and and it's it's very intentional. Uh, we strike the balance between the two. I believe personally that both extremes, Calvinism and Arminianism, are are way 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 out of balance. Extremes of doctrine taken to unhealthy places. I mean, uh, I've seen so many people's walks ruined, absolutely ruined by Calvinism. And I've seen from the other side, people sort of lose a respect for our faith once and for all delivered for the saints. And so what we do is we try to stay right in the middle. And that is not a cop out, Jason. That's where the Bible puts us. If we teach the Bible, uh, I can teach that I'm chosen by God. That's what a Calvinist would say. But I can also teach, as an Armenian would teach, that I chose him back out of necessity. It was a requirement. I had to choose him back, and I did so of my own free will. I can teach that that we're secure in Christ. And then there's passage of Scripture that 
I can teach verse by verse. It says people that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I find no tension between man's free will and the sovereignty of God. I have a lot of problems with Calvinism, as I said, because Calvinism has ruined so many Christian lives. It just It's a, a, a doctrine, a theology that destroys hope and joy. Uh, Arminianism, frankly, is just sloppy. It's just an excuse for, oh, I was saved, but now I'm not because I'm doing bad things, but I'll get saved again kind of thing. And, and I just think they're both extremes. And one thing to remember always, Jason, is that extremes are always unhealthy spiritually because they're out of balance. And both extremes of that line you drew between Calvinism and Arminianism are really, really out of balance perspectives on what the scripture teaches. Uh, we're almost out of time for this half. So Jason, let me say this. Um, get your theology from the Bible rather than from somebody else's systematic theology. It'll change the way you view the Bible, I promise you. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. The phones are quiet. We'd love your calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. Remember that we've got our Ladies Retreat Reflection tonight at 7 o'clock here at the church. Uh, ladies, you can watch it at calvarysa.com uh, via live stream. Uh, and I just feel like God isn't done blessing the ladies and blessing those who are going to come. So uh, tune in at 7 o'clock. Here is a question from James. James says, I have a hard time forgiving myself when I sin. I always feel like God is mad at me. James, there's a couple ways I can approach the answer to this question. And I want you to think about this um, um, and and really be honest when when you let the Holy Spirit sort of speak to your heart. Whenever people say, I can't forgive myself, I know God forgave me, but I can't forgive myself, the root of that is pride. I'm not trying to dig in and turn the screws. James, not at all. It's just how dare we be so arrogant as to be unwilling to forgive that which God paid the price for. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. We either believe that or we don't. Now, that's in the context of fellowship with God. That's not about salvation. It's for those who are saved. John's whole theme of First John is fellowship with one another, that we would have the fellowship uh, with them that we have with Christ, the, the people who are, who are the object of the letter. So whenever somebody says, you know, I know God forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. Uh, there's two problems. Pride is one. The other is that your focus is on you instead of on Jesus. And this is a really important thing to understand, James, because if we don't forgive ourselves, how are we going to enjoy the fellowship that Jesus died for? How are we going to be used by the Lord for His glory the next day. Whenever we find ourselves doing guilt, and, and let me say this, God is not mad at you. I think our sin breaks His heart, James, sometimes. I really do. But He's not mad. God's not a person like we're a person. God has no sin nature like we do. We're mad at somebody. We cross them off our list. When the Lord is cut off from you because of your sin, it just causes him sadness. It's never what he intended. He always wants to be with you. He loves you. James, he proved it by dying for your sins, by paying the price that you had to, that you owed and couldn't pay. 
And I think we'll settle in our mind once and for all that God loves me. He's crazy about me. Then when we sin, rather than going in fear, you know, John says perfect love casts out fear. And this is fear has to do with judgment. Since we have no fear of judgment, then we ought to be eager to run to God and ask for forgiveness. And if we run to God and ask for forgiveness, and that answer is already yes, then why would we feel like God's mad at us? Or why would we have a hard time forgiving? Now, I understand being disappointed in ourselves. I'm disappointed in me a lot. I'm disappointed when ugly thoughts come in, and I know that that's not uh, even my fault. The, The enemy brings ugly thoughts. But it's, I think personally, James, the height of arrogance to say, I cannot forgive me even though God already has. Believe me, God's standards are higher than ours. I think sometimes it's just a trick the enemy plays to make us feel so bad about ourselves and bad about our sin that we kind of cut ourselves off from God all over again. Let me explain one thing to you, James. I think this will help. The difference between conviction and condemnation. We know that Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And by the way, Romans chapter 8 is is the, the glorious chapter about life in the Spirit of God. Well, the first thing to understand if you're going to be in the Spirit of God is that you're not condemned. You've been delivered from condemnation, rescued from condemnation. So what you do is say simply that, God, if you've forgiven me, I accept Thank you, Jesus. Help me not to sin the next time. Now, when you sin, conviction of the Holy Spirit drives you on your knees figuratively to to Jesus. Condemnation, on the other hand, comes from the enemy and it condemns and makes you feel like God's mad and keeps saying how guilty you are. Well, that's condemnation that comes from the enemy. It drives you away from God. So you can always identify what you're feeling emotionally, what you're experiencing emotionally. If you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit, it's a good thing. God wants to wash you clean and reestablish instantly your fellowship with Him. So we run to our God who loves us. Condemnation makes us feel so unworthy, so unholy, that we're driven away from God. And that's what the enemy's trying to do. So, read your Bible. Really get to know who Jesus is. And if you will do that, you'll stop feeling like God's mad at you. James, one of the things that we always have to remember is what we feel is not nearly as important as what we know to be true. 340-9585, Katie wants to ask, is physical healing guaranteed if we have enough faith? Katie, uh, physical healing is not guaranteed anywhere ever. Um, you've been in a prosperity church, um, by his stripes we are healed, which has nothing to do with physical healing. His stripes were the punishment for our sins. God is just and holy and God has to punish sin but it's the sin that we're healed of the consequences the effects of sin physical healing is never guaranteed and I'm sorry there are churches that misrepresent that and usually they're sort of crazy charismatic churches and they don't really teach the Bible Katie get into a good church Get into a good church. You know, it's always interesting to me, Katie, that people say this, and yet the Apostle Paul, who certainly had enough faith, wasn't healed when he pleaded with God three times. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Everybody dies. If healing was promised, that wouldn't happen. So the healing is spiritual, rather than physical. Now, let me be clear about this, Katie. There are times that God heals. 
but healing is not the norm. Miracles are not, by definition, everyday occurrences. Healing is according to God's will. And sometimes he heals and sometimes he doesn't. Yesterday, just no no phone calls so I can take this minute. Yesterday morning I was up praying and, and I've already, we, we've got some people that are dealing, um, three women in particular, but dealing with, with um, what we've all believed to be terminal diseases. And some of them are really having a hard time. And one in particular, a, a woman in our church named Pamela, I love her so much. And she's just not well enough to get to church. She watches online, and I always tell her, well, this doesn't help me because I can't see you. And um, Yesterday morning, I've got a prayer wall with hundreds and hundreds of pictures on it, so I can always remember to pray for people. And um, I was looking at her picture, and I just said, Jesus, I need to see Pamela today. I know it's not likely she's going to be in church, but I need to see her. So maybe today you can get her to church. And her daughter comes up to me after second service and say, Mom's here, did you see her? And I said, no. And um, so I got to see her and I just said, Jesus, you are so good. And this is a young woman who is uh, heroically battling cancer. And the, the chemo has is, is attacked her heart and weakened it. And so she's just having a really, really rough time. And she needs to know people are praying for her. And I needed to see her yesterday to just look into her eyes and know she's okay. And, um, and and yesterday the Lord answered that question. If if physical healing were guaranteed, man, we'd be confessing it and naming it and claiming it. But Katie, that's just not what the Lord is talking about in Isaiah 53, not at all. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Damon. Uh, Pastor Ron, you often say that our lives have to change when we get saved. So what was the biggest change in your life when you got saved? Uh, Damon, you're right. I often say that. In fact, I say it as often as I get the opportunity to say it. Uh, I tell people all the time that when you meet my Jesus, it changes you. He changes you. You can't be the same after meeting him as you were before meeting him. It's just impossible. When the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you, change occurs. Your sensitivity to sin, your desire to change, your desire to be more like Jesus, to be used by and for Jesus. So all of those things have to change. You can't keep doing the same things that you did before you were saved and claim to be saved. It's just that simple. So Damon, the biggest change in my life I think is pretty easy to put my finger on. Uh, I was a jerk. Um, and and boy, believe me, there's no exaggerating there. Uh, I was uh, inconsiderate. I was rude. Um, I, I didn't care about people except or unless uh, it related to how they could help me. I was in business, so um, I, I, I relied on people. Um, uh, I was a jerk to Paula. I was a jerk to my kids. Uh, two boys, when I got saved, they were 18 and 16. Um, they grew up with Ron the jerk, Dad the jerk in their home. Um, and, I mean, instantly for me, and I mean literally instantly, uh, I was nice. I was navigating territory I'd never been before. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know why I cared about people. I didn't know why um, I wanted to be nice. I just knew that Jesus was in me and he wanted me to love people. You know, for years and years and years, Damon, uh, Paula and our family circles and, and close friends from before I got saved, time I, before I got saved, uh, used to always call her poor Paula. She was married to Ron the jerk. Then when I got saved, it was poor Paula because now she's married to a religious nut, they'd say. Um, but, you know, uh, Paula would tell you that she knew instantly something was different. And I was still kind of a jerk, so I didn't tell her for a couple of months because I didn't want to say, I told you you needed Jesus. But the, the truth is, 
She knew instantly something had changed, and so did my kids. Paula is like she's poking me in the head saying, is that really you? Where's the old Ron? And he was gone. And in Paula's case, it took her about one year before she was no longer suspicious or skeptical. It was as though the Lord said to her one day, okay, you you, you asked me for this, this husband who's a man of God. I've given him to you. You see the way he's changed. How much longer are you going to be doubting? And that was almost one year to the day when I got saved. And um, and Paul and I were able to really, really start moving forward together after that. So, Damon, that was the easy one for me. I did some horrible things. I mean, I was a, a, a an obsessive gambler. Um, I owned racehorses and went to the racetrack. I played poker and gambled um, all the time and everything. In in pretty short order, I stopped doing those things. I never drank or did drugs or things like that. And so um, I just was a different person. There was a new sheriff in my life and, and uh, changed everything. So I hope that's an answer to your question, Damon. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an interesting question from Josh. I often hear the early church fathers quoted in matters of doctrine and theology. Did they know more than we do just because they were closer to Jesus? How much should we rely on them for our understanding? Josh, you know, this is a question that's debated by biblical scholars throughout the centuries. Um, uh, I'm just going to tell you what I believe with all of my heart. I I read uh, the mistakes of the early church. I read Jesus' letters to the early church, you know, some 60 years after his death and resurrection. Uh, They were all messed up doctrinally and theologically. Um, I I read some of the the creeds, and I read some of the the, um, writings of, of, of... those we consider early church fathers, and they, they've got problems with doctrine uh, that run throughout. So the, the, the reality is, is that from the first century on, people have gotten things wrong. So I'm not a big church fathers guy or, a, or a, one that sees the, the tremendous value to learn from the early church fathers because of the early church doctrines. Um, if you read the Gospels or the, the Epistles, um, Paul's letter to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You weren't running a good race. Who cut in on you? Are you going to finish in the flesh what began in the Spirit? He writes the same kind of tone to the Colossians. First um, uh, John, he's dealing with uh, heresy uh, in, in 90 or so A.D., um, of Gnosticism. So believe me, wherever believers are gathered, there's an enemy that's going to mess with doctrine. So I just don't think that we should rely on them any more than we should rely on modern-day commentators or modern-day theologians. I think sometimes we can get lost in the romance of, of early church history, and these are the church fathers, um, and and I, I just I just don't see a lot of benefit. Now, having said that, there are some early church fathers. Polycarp is one of them that that was he was a disciple of John the Beloved. Um, you can read about a lot of these heroes of our our faith, men that that and women who survived uh, what we would consider impossible difficulty. Um, they really paid a price for their faith in Jesus Christ uh, in that first century church. And so I think, yeah, there there are some people that are heroes of our faith, but doctrinally things are really, really messed up. Um, and that seems to be problematic throughout the history of the church, including and up to this day. Think about something. If if, if the Lord tarries, and God forbid this has happened, but, but let's just say... Another 2,000 years goes by, and people who are following Jesus 2,000 years from now on earth are reading some of our Christian blogs and Christian commentaries 
and they would see these things with the fact that we live closer to Jesus than they did cause them to believe that we somehow knew more? They would read prosperity theology. They would read uh, prosperity theology. They'd read seeker-sensitive stuff. And I, I just think, Josh, they, they would shake their head and say, what were these guys thinking? And I just think the same thing is true about the early church fathers. There's always good teachers and bad teachers, good practice of doctrine and bad practice of doctrine in every single generation of the church. So I do think we rely on them too much. And I think other than for the historical value, I don't think there's a whole lot of value in going back and spending a bunch of time reading them. Charles wants to know, do I believe in Sola Scriptura? I do. Um, it's the word alone as our source of authority, as the final authority in matters of doctrine, in matters of practice, in life. So I do. Um, Charles, the real problem if for those church traditions that do not believe in Sola Scriptura, of course the Catholic Church is one of them, they place church tradition on the same level as as the scriptures and by the way when you do that you're always putting tradition above scriptures because anything you read in the scriptures you don't like you just change, tradition changes and we've seen the traditions in the Catholic Church change in uh, the time from the 313 AD when the Catholic Church in Rome was formed um, unless we are Believers in the authority, the final authority of the Word of God, then tradition is always going to change what we believe and how we practice our faith. And the Word is given to us. Jesus said, not one word, not one jot or tittle will pass away. His Word will endure forever. And He gave us this lasting direction, this lasting book so that we would know how to live our lives for Jesus. When Jesus was getting ready to leave his disciples, those who would become apostles, he said to him, I have more to tell you, much more to tell you, but you're not ready yet to hear it. And then he said in 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes and the word is the perfect thing leading to the return of the perfect Christ, then we know how to live. And so I think if scripture is not your final and only authority for practice and doctrine, then I think, Charles, we just kind of make it up as we go along. So yes, I believe very, very strongly in it. Uh, as evidence, I would offer every church tradition, every denomination that has turned on the Word of God and look at the condition, the horrible condition that those church traditions have fallen into because they have thrown away the Word of God. Uh, or even now, to this day, we are being um, um, thrown about by every wind and wave of doctrine um, the world that we live in is attacking the authority, the validity of the Word of God. Um, if you don't hold on to it, uh, then we'll lose it, it's for sure. Here is a question from Monica. Oh, this I've never had this question. In fact, and uh, uh, Monica says, How should white people deal with the accusations of white privilege and reparations as a means of proving that we're not prejudiced? Uh, I don't know if you know this, Monica. This question's been around for uh, since early last week. I'm just now getting to it. Uh, but uh, our former mayor, Julian Castro, who is uh, running for uh, Democratic nomination for president, uh, he just came out today, I think over the weekend, but I just heard about it today, um, saying that, that reparations are something that we need to consider very strongly. If he were president, he would appoint a committee. That's in reparations. Reparations are financial payments to the descendants of slaves. Um, and he's serious about that as 
a solution? I don't know. I, I think the only solution is Jesus. So how should we deal with it? I think the only way we deal with it, now, Monica, I'm going to assume you're a Christian. Um, we don't have to worry about white privilege. We don't have to worry about accusations. Um, if you're in Christ, you can't be prejudiced. There's no color in Christ. Um, now, again, we live with the reality of the world that we live in, and racism is a real thing, but it ought not ever to be mentioned in the family of God. So I think we ignore the accusations. We let people that don't know Jesus talk about that, and we simply point people to Jesus. You know, Monica, it's it's interesting. And I have a position, a perspective that's a little different than, than most white people, of course. Uh, I've been for 49 years um, with Paula, and um, uh, mixed marriage was much more difficult and unusual uh, 50 years ago than it, than it is now. Uh, and we've we've been through all kinds of prejudiced things. I know it exists. I have two boys. The world identifies as black, and because they identify as black, uh, they have been victims of of prejudice and racism. But the way to deal with it is just to turn to Jesus. I can tell you this about me and Paula: we have faced more prejudice and hatred because of our position in Christ than we've ever faced because we're a mixed couple. So, Monica, I, I just think you just don't deal with it. You, you don't try to prove to everybody that you're not prejudiced. You just walk with Jesus, and everybody will see that you're not prejudiced. I hope that made sense to you. The phones are quiet today. Maybe tomorrow you've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Remember our men's and women's studies tonight. Ladies, it's retreat reflection time. May the Lord bless you and keep you, Lord willing. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.